Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2001 film AI, Artificial Intelligence. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Good morning. Uh, Barrett, um, this is a movie we talked at the end of last episode a little bit about um, our, our initial experiences with this. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about this film. Um, what is your history with this film? Like, uh, is this something that you saw in theaters in 2001? Yeah, I, I really um, highly anticipated this film, mostly because, as uh, as you know and regular listeners know, I'm kind of a Stanley Kubrick buff. Um, and so I, I really lo- looked at this film as a Kubrick film more than a Spielberg fan film. I've always been kind of kind of suspicious, especially in 2001. At that point, I really wasn't sure that Spielberg was a serious filmmaker, despite things like Schindler's List. So I went into it hoping for something that had a really strongly Kubrickian uh, uh, feeling about it. Um, were you, so, so how, how, how much were you aware of this movie before it came out? I mean, this is a long production, uh, a long, I mean, Kubrick is famous for having these films that he wants to make. And um, you know, there, there are so many unrealized Kubrick projects. So it's interesting that this one was realized actually came to fruition to an extent, that's a Kubrick film. Um, so, like, like, how early were you aware of this film? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't remember how. I mean, I suppose I was probably aware of it sometimes at sometime in the '90s because that's when I was really kind of getting into Kubrick a lot. Um, so, yeah, I suppose I've been aware of it for a while before it came out. Uh, do you want to just sort of walk through the the, the production history of this? Because this goes back to the seventies for Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes back to the seventies when um, uh, Brian uh, Kubrick ran across Brian Aldiss's uh, short story. Um, what is it? Super. I, I never can remember. Super the toys title. last all summer. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and you're right. As as is typical of Kubrick, uh, he he. I mean, one thing I will say about Kubrick is. Um, Every film that Kubrick made, almost, almost every film that Kubrick made, was actually an adaptation of one form or another. So Kubrick was always was was always interested in, in adapting and always looking for things to adapt. In fact, as a little bit of an aside, it was his desire to adapt the Aryan Papers that ultimately led to Spielberg making, um, or he dropped adapting Aryan Papers because Spielberg made um, Schindler's List. So so a little bit of the backstory here is that. Is that Kubrick had an admiration for um, uh, for Spielberg, and the fact that Spielberg made Jurassic Park was what got Kubrick thinking that AI could actually be made. So anyway, so he started working on this in, in, in the 70s and kind of kept working on it in the 80s. Uh, there was a string of different screenwriters from the end from Brian Aldiss, original author, through Ian Watson, and a bunch of others. So Kubrick is working on a, an adaptation He's also working on actual production and actually shooting some scenes with different directors. And ultimately, Kubrick becomes convinced that the technology, the uh, you know, CGI is in his infancy, that the technology does not exist to make the film successful. Uh, he, and he does not believe that a child actor can actually pull off the role. So he's pretty convinced at this point that you need some kind of CGI work in order to actually create the character of David. So he kind of he kind of sets it aside, and in the meantime, as I said, he gets impressed by Jurassic Park, uh, and that's at the point at which he kind of brings Spielberg on board and says, um, 
I, I think this is actually a film that is better suited for you to make than it is for me to make. Part of the issue here too, though, is this is also kind of typical of Kubrick. According to one of the people that worked with Kubrick is he, he, couldn't, he, he couldn't get the ending right. Uh, he didn't feel he could get the ending right, which is interesting because as maybe we'll talk about later, uh, the last third of the film, the kind of which, which is seen as sort of sentimental, people pinned to Spielberg, but Spielberg himself has said that that was actually Kubrick. Um, and it's the middle part of the film, which is more Spielberg. So we'll kind of get into that. So anyway, so that that was why ultimately Kubrick kind of handed it over over to, um, to Spielberg. One other thing I'll say about it is that one of the screenwriters uh, Kubrick worked with said that Kubrick always referred to the project as Pinocchio. Um, and I think that really says a lot about what Kubrick saw as being kind of the really the central theme of the film. The film, as you know, has it has so many different themes we can engage. Uh, but for Kubrick, that was maybe the central idea. It really is about this Pinocchio figure wanting to become uh, real. And if, it, and if you take that as what Kubrick saw as the main theme of the film, then the last third actually makes a, a lot of sense in kind of locking that into place. Have you read Pinocchio, the, the, uh, the 19th century... No, you know, I think I'm like most people in my generation. I know Pinocchio from either an abridged version or from Disney's uh, take on it. Well, I read it this week because I was on a flight to DC and I read uh, I read Pinocchio for the first time, and it's very different than the. I mean, it's the 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 roots of the Disney movie is there, but but the the book is far darker uh, in the way that that this film. Uh, you can it can feel it can feel a certain way, but if you stop and think about it for a little bit or pay attention, this film I think is very very dark and and very interesting in terms of some of the the questions that it raises. Um, the one big difference um, that I saw between Pin the the book Pinocchio and this film is that uh, Pinocchio the the book Pinocchio is very heavy handed in terms of like uh, trying to teach the presumably child who is having this book read to them, like what it means to be a good person. And, and the view of what it means to be a good person is a lot about industrious work and things like this. So it's sort of stripped of that. But in my mind, I think about the, um, the Disney version of Pinocchio, and it's very much about this relationship between Pinocchio and Geppetto. Mm -hmm. And the blue fairy is almost this like magical thing that sort of shows up to fix things, but isn't a central thing in the book. It is far more, a quest of Pinocchio wanting to be a real boy and seeking out the blue fairy. Mm. So like, so actually I feel like this is, this is a truer telling of Pinocchio in a kind of way than the Disney one. Which, which is interesting, but I'm really glad you brought that up, Sam, which is interesting because it really suggests that in many ways, even if Brian Aldous's story was the starting point, Kubrick really thought of himself as adapting Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so when you first saw this film, so you saw it in 2001 mm -hmm. in the theater, had you seen it since then, you know, you watched it obviously this week or, or so, had you seen it in between? No, I have okay. not. Bro. It's, so, truly, it's 20 years later. So reading lots of reviews of this, there's lots of people who watched it in 2001 and had uh, Roger Ebert is famously one of these had one view of it. And then 10 years later had an entirely different view of the movie. Uh, it had grown in his eyes. And and he even says, like, I read my... So in 2001, he adds it to his great movies list. Um, and he, he what the, the review he writes then is almost an apology. He's almost saying, like, here's the things I didn't 
think about or I didn't notice when I saw this the first time. And this is why it moved from a three-star pretty good movie to my great movies list. So what was your impression in 2001, if you can remember it? Disappointment. Yeah, I was, I, I was disappointed. Um, I, I thought it was too long. Um, I hated the third act. It, it just didn't, it did, it, it seemed to me like a very unsuccessful marriage of two quite different sensibilities. Mm-hmm. I will say, I, I don't think that I had the, uh, the history with Kubrick or actually even probably with Spielberg to, to think about it in those lines. But I did remember thinking I was kind of bored by it. I did watch a late screen, a uh, late showing of it. So I'm sure I was really tired. Um, cause I am not a night person. And I just remember thinking, I remember thinking like, I, I didn't quite understand what was going on, but at the same time, there was something, there was some sort of um, magnetism to it at the same time. There are certain points in this movie um, that when I rewatched it, uh, I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't, like how far down the rabbit hole is this going to go? And I think about it, it really is the moment where it feels like the movie's ending and they're at the bottom of the sea and it feels like, you know, they're even panning backwards, and you know, panning out. And you're like, okay, this is how it's going to end. And then all of a sudden it's 2000 years later. And I, and my mind was sort of like, okay, so this is that we're, we're, we're going deeper into something. I did remember that, but I did not think about this as a movie that I like. What was your impression in 2021 watching this? Much more positive. Um, and, you know, I've been, I've been, kind of trying to figure out why it is uh, that I feel uh, that it's a much better movie than I thought it was in, in 2001. I mean, I think part of it is that I, I, having had the initial experience of the film and being disappointed by it, I realized that it was not going to be the film I wanted it to be. So I think I went into it with different kinds of expectations. And I, and I, and I had done some more reading about it and and what I've already alluded to, Spielberg saying, no, no, the dark parts were mine and the sweet parts were Stanley's. Uh, so it, it kind of changed my view of what looked to me before like something that was kind of not very well integrated into something that actually was trying to, was maybe a little more organic than I thought it, it, it had been. I also think probably to a certain extent, I've been affected by seeing other films on this theme. Um, and so that was also at the back of my mind as well. I've, so I was much more... I think aware of this film as participating in a kind of a cinematic conversation about about a number of the themes that are at the heart of the film. So it had a very different context cinematically for me than it did now than it did in 2001. I will say for me I I kind of love this movie. <laughs> I like I it 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 landed really well. I've actually watched it twice in the last month cuz I um I watched it uh when we were on our break in July, I just happened to watch this. And then um, in preparation for this podcast, I watched it again with my, my wife and my daughter and uh, it worked on me both times. It's, it's, it's one of those where like, I don't know that it gives me answers, but it sure makes me think about a lot of things. It's, it kind of does what I hope a movie's going to do in lots of ways. Um, so I think I, what I want to do at some point is I want to watch this movie at six in the morning. Um, cause I want to watch it when my brain is as sharp as it can be. And I want to think about, think about some of these things. So I have a fourth viewing in my future at some point with this. Um, you mentioned, uh, not having necessarily a, a high view of Spielberg. I'm sort of curious. We've talked about Kubrick on this, this show before. 
what is your 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 sense of Spielberg as a filmmaker, either in 2001 or in 2021? Well, in, in, in 2001, it was still this kind of, um, you know, a guy who makes great blockbusters and then has aspirations to make more serious films like Amistad or, um, uh, or Schindler's List. So I, I recognize, and, and, you know, I recognize he, he was capable of kind of those two different genres, but I, I really wasn't sure that um, he always knew what he was doing with the, more, with the more serious films. I think since then I've become more impressed by Spielberg, both by his range and I think by his ability to actually make films that are worth revisiting. So, um, I mean, I was very impressed, for example, in, among his recent films, I was very impressed by Bridge of Spies. Um, I think Lincoln is a really, really good film. Um, and so I, I, he's kind of been raised a bit in my, in my estimation. And, and one thing he has in common with Kubrick is that they are both, I mean, I, I always thought of Kubrick as a, an art house filmmaker who somehow managed to be po fairly popular. Whereas I always thought of Spielberg as a popular filmmaker who was trying to kind of get into the art house. And what I've come to think about is I think that they're both filmmakers who kind of erase that distinction. I think they're capable of making films that can find large audiences, but are also intelligent, thoughtful films that we expect to come out of a more kind of art house tradition. So I have a much higher estimation of Spielberg in 2021 than I did uh, 20 years ago. And I will say, as a child of the '80s, I should, I should be, I should be sitting here telling you, well, Spielberg is the filmmaker of my childhood. But in reality, as I look at his filmography, like I saw ET as a kid. I mean, I was uh, six years old when that came out, and I remember like thinking it was a good movie, but it was not like this deeply impactful thing. I think I, I mean, they like movies like Indiana Jones and things like that. Like those were good, but. The, the movies of my childhood were Star Wars and the Karate Kid. So like, like, so Spielberg didn't have a deep impact on me. And it's actually not until probably the last decade that I've gone back and watched for the first time a movie like Jaws, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, so like, so I have, I have certain, certain points for him, but I don't think about him as like, oh, Spielberg's making a movie. That's a big deal to me. Um, so I don't know that I have a lot of what I, for my, the year that I was born, how I should feel about him, I don't know that I always do, um, because I don't know that I was even in the '80s always watching the stuff that he. Like I've never seen Close Encounters. I've never seen um, a lot of the, a lot of the the like. I, I think I came to Jurassic Park late as well, so like I just was I was not like interested in dinosaurs. So Jurassic Park didn't interest me as a kid, um, and I didn't see those things till adulthood. So that so that tells me that in uh, in AI you did not pick up on the visual quote from Close Encounters. Um, David's David's entrance into the apartment is uh, an image of the aliens coming off the spaceship in ET. And uh, yeah, in, in, no, sorry, oh, close, in, encounters. In close encounters. Yeah, um, you know the the other thing I will say, kind of back to your initial question about uh, Kubrick versus um, Spielberg, uh, in, in answering this part, Sp Spielberg for me, and I think this is now unfair, but for me, he was he was always visceral, and emotional and sentimental. Whereas Kubrick is uh, is intellectual, uh, cold, and analytical, and so those those that's kind of the stereotype of their two different sensibilities uh, that I that I didn't think initially worked very well in AI. Yeah. Um, so as we talk, as we dive into the film now, we had talked before we started recording about um, kind of looking at this is a this is a film with a clear three act structure. I mean, it's almost three, these three distinct stories that, that, that 
that uh, all work together to tell this big story. But there are clear act breaks, even you know, as as we're sort of thinking about these things, which is something um, I know when I think about other Kubrick movies, is something he does. I mean, think about my favorite Kubrick movie is 2001: A Space Odyssey, which even has title cards for like the 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 big acts in there. And I actually think there there are some great 2001 mirrors in this um, in, in this movie you know starting with the fact that it comes out in 2001 is sort of interesting um, but but I'll, I'll hit some of those as we as we go through but I think about even um, on the plane flying home I watched a little bit of full metal jacket and even that has like two distinct parts of the movie oh, and they are clearly different parts and and so so I'm I'm assuming that's part of how Kubrick thinks about storytelling is really thinking in terms of acts and chapters that are that are broken up in a kind of way. I, I mean, um, I'm trying to think of Spielberg movies doing that much and, and, you know, to an extent there are, there are some of those structures, but I don't think they're as explicit as, as I see in Kubrick movies. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. I think as you've already um, implied, Sam, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Kubrick is adapting uh, books or stories. And so he does have a very kind of literary sense of, uh, of structure and narrative. So the the first act is um, about kind of the creation of David and David getting uh, brought into the uh, the Swinton family, and then it ends with him being cast out of the family. Um, but we so we start with this. <laughs> there's sort of this series of things that lead up to this, though. We start with this Ben Kingsley voiceover about you know kind of setting the stage for this ecological disaster that has destroyed parts of the world and that there are some people who are still living in kind of uh, relative luxury and comfort. And we're going to see some of those people, but then there are clearly people who are not living in that. And then we cut to the scene of scientists, um, AI scientists uh, laying out some of the, like uh, the ideas that are going to be embedded in some of this in terms of what are we talking about when we talk about, uh, we talk about AI and here's where we see uh, we see William Hurt, who is the, I guess, the Geppetto figure in this story, <laughs> the, the creator of David. Um, and, and he's going to drop out of the movie for a long time and then come back. And we're going to learn some things about David as we uh, as we go through this. Um, so then just to think about the the things that happen in this, and then we can talk about some of the big ideas. So we have this opening scene and they're kind of asking these questions about like, can a can an AI be created to love? And if so, like, can then it can that lead to an AI that can desire and dream? Um, and one and then one of the other scientists asks him, like, it's the question isn't can an AI be created that loves, but can a human love an AI? So that that comes to one of the big questions is like, kind of, what is the responsibility once you create these? this synthetic life what is the what is the responsibility to it um and then we see david brought uh brought into this home of this couple who has a son who hasn't quite lost a son but they have a son who is um sick in in the sort of cryogenic freezing and there's this assumption that they're never going to see their son again so we have david brought into this family and the this crucial scene where the mother who is the first resistant chooses to imprint on, on David, or choose to have David imprint on her, or I forget what, what direction we would say that. Um, and then we have the son, the, the actual organic son, um, brought back into the family. He recovers, and we have this sort of sibling rivalry, which eventually leads to David being cast out. The mother 
initially bring going to bring him back to the the company that made him because that's what you're supposed to do. But on the way there, she she can't bring him there because she knows it will lead to him being destroyed. So she literally, I mean, it is sort of a casting out of the garden. Like she literally just like pushes him out and, and runs away as, as you know, drives away as he's, as he's standing there. And that's sort of the close of that first, um, that first act. Um, I have lots of things I want to talk about with here, but as you think about that first act, what are some of the big things you see brought up in that? Well, first of all, one thing I will say about that first act is I think what's really interesting just to kind of follow out our earlier line of, of conversation, it's really interesting to see how that first act has elements of both typical Kubrick and typical Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the voiceover reminds me of the opening of Dr. Strangelove, the, um, the kind of sibling rivalry that you see between the boys uh, as that plays out, um, that has a very strongly Kubrickian flavor to it, the kind of, uh, 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 sadism is probably too strong a word, but the jealousy, I guess, of Martin uh, towards David. But it's also, in a sense, a darker version of the uh, of ET's interaction with the children in, in ET. So I just find I, I find that particularly uh, interesting. I think for me, that opening conversation with with William Hurt. Uh, trying to explain what he's trying to do. And as you noticed, as you noted, the question the scientist asks about not can they, um, not can, it, not, not is the robot able to love, but can we love the robot? I mean, to me, that really is kind of the, the big moral question, you know, that um, for Dr. Hobby, the issue is, well, God made Adam to love him. But the real theological question is, will we love Adam? Um, and that, you know, this, this gets me back to the, one of the reasons I wanted to, f- to follow Gattaca was Gattaca as a movie raises this question about what does it mean to play God? Uh, and this is a movie that introduces that at, at the beginning, doesn't necessarily underscore it, but it's there all along. And so this is also a movie asking about what does it mean to play God? So Gattaca is what does it mean to play God in manipulating human beings? This film is about what does it mean to play God in creating uh a being that may or may not be human or may or may not become human. So I think that issue of, of responsibility uh, for, for David and who ultimately by the end of the film takes responsibility for him uh, is to me, that's a really important theme in the first part. Well, and, and if you think about the, the way that that question is framed, you know, that God created humans to love him. And, and, and if in this scenario, you know, we're God and the creation is, is Adam, right? Um, the, the AI is Adam. Uh, then the, what the other scientist asks is, you know, can humans ever love the AI? That's asking the question, can God love humans? Like, like, like God creates us to love him, but does God love us? I mean, yeah. so, and, yeah. and that becomes a big theme in this, uh, in this story in terms of like, uh, I think I can't even remember. It, I think it might be Joe that, that says this line about, how humans are always looking for their creator, right? They're trying mm-hmm. to find meaning by finding their yes. creator. And we're going to see that theme repeated because David is doesn't know it necessarily, but he's looking for his creator or ends up being on a quest that, that leads him to his creator. And then as we'll see with the blue fairy there, I mean, there is this sort of other, other sense of that. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting, and I don't know how intentional you, you, you were in pairing this with Gattaca in this way, but Gattaca is this story also about sibling rivalry, but this inverts it, right? Because um, Anton is the is the in, in Gattaca is the the uh, created being, right? Mm-hmm. Is the the engineered being, 
but he's also the 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 sort of loved one right mm. and and that's so that's like martin and and vincent is the one who is in in gattaca is the sort of naturally born child but he's the one that's cast out and david's the one that's cast out so so it's like it, it inverts that because what i think this does uh and this becomes a huge thing and this touches on something you said is that the brilliance of this story, this film, this screenplay is that they do everything they can to make you empathize with the AI. Mm -hmm. And then they ask you how really in essence, they're asking you, do you love David? Because mm -hmm. you're going to be, you're going to be put in all these situations where um, you're going to end up the movies pushing you to end up to side with him which is weird if you think about science fiction to be like, wait, we're, we're supposed to side with the, the unreal thing mm, <laughs> as opposed mm -hmm. to the real thing. Um, I, and this is where, you know, we're, I'm starting to think about 2001 echoes oh. because there is also uh, in 2001, you have, you have the, the HAL 9000, which is this, this AI that is this um, homicidal, you know, artificial intelligence um, kind of thing. But so, and, and it's easy. And, and, you know, part of that is we're watching, Hal be killed by mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by Dave, and I think it's interesting we have Dave and David yes. uh, as we think about this movie, right? So, but now that's inverted, and now the character that we're um, kind of seeing through the eyes of, we're living through, is is the the character we're usually not uh, connected mm -hmm. to in uh, in David, and I I think that is a it's it's very effective. Part of this, you know, you talked about how Kubrick didn't think a human being could play David. I know Haley Joel Osment hasn't had a a major career, you know, after the stuff he did as a kid. But this is one of the most amazing performances. Like <laughs> I, I'm stunned by the fact that he seems both unreal and real simultaneously. Is 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 just stunning. Yeah, it's an amazing performance. Um... So a, a couple of other things I want to point out about this, the first part of the film. Um, one is that I, I think we, we, should not, we should not overlook the fact that this being is being made because it's a marketing ploy. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, and so when you, when you get to the last act of the film and he sees all the Davids lined up in the box and then, and then the, the female uh, dolls as well, uh, robots as well, I mean, I think it's a very strong reminder of that um, very little innovation happens without uh, an eye on the market. So there's a kind of, you know, capitalist impulse underneath all this that, uh, again, that undercuts the sentimentality of um, the fact that um, Dr. Hobby is trying to recreate his own son. So mm -hmm. I think that, that's, that's something to keep in mind. The other thing, this may be a little bit of a bunny trail, but I got kind of interested in the fact that so often uh, in that first act, David responds to a situation by asking, is it a game? And I started thinking about, you know, well, what, what, what is a game and why do we play games? And to what degree playing a game is part of you know, being, a human, being a human being? So I, I looked actually at a couple of accounts of game playing by game designers. Uh, one game designer says we play games because they make us happy. Uh, another designer says that a game is a series of interesting choices. And as we navigate those choices, we reveal who we are and, who, and how we think. So game, uh, playing a game is actually an act of exposition. Um, so anyway, so I, just, I thought that was just a kind of interesting subplot, this notion of David encountering an, un, uh, an unfamiliar situation by assuming or thinking perhaps 
uh, that it's a game. The, the final thing I want to say about imprinting, and, and one of the ways in which the analogy between God and us and the creator of the Mechas uh, and, and, and us, and one of the ways in which I think that analogy is, is, is terribly flawed, of course, is that part of the point of our relationship with God is the ability to choose freely. Uh, and that God wants us to enter into a relationship of our own free choice. And we're, I don't think we're created to love God. We're created to have a relationship with God, which hopefully involves love, but it's a relationship. Whereas with David, once he's imprinted, um, you know, that love is, uh, is kind of programmed in, into him. Um, and the other thing is interesting to me is I don't understand. There doesn't appear to be any moral accounting for what happens if, if he lives his, if he lives out the natural life of his parents and they die, uh, you know, does he get destroyed at that point? That's that's never actually dealt with. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the reviews get into this idea of like, is David's love love if he's not free? <laughs> you know, it's like like if it's just programming, is it just he passes right. the, the the love Turing test? But it's not. But it's not that he loves; it's that he passes the test. Right. You know. Right. Um, Interesting. I want to go back to Is It a Game real quick because I hadn't thought about this, but um, when we get to the end of this movie, we're going to talk about David as an evolutionary step into something much, uh, a much more expansive, robust form of, of AI and the beings he encounters at the end. So it's interesting. Uh, you could also look at Is It a Game as showing the fact that David is also an evolution. Because when we think about the beginnings of AI, we have to go back to think about the beginnings of computing. And one of the first things you do with a computer, like, 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 like with a computer is you create games, right? That's mm -hmm. a way to interact, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, if we were to go back into his equivalent of his like reptilian brain, it's it's understood through games. So so there's this sense when he doesn't understand, he maybe reverts back to okay. Well, w w what is in my what is in my evolutionary past? Well, it's games. So like that's going to be maybe the way I try to understand this. In the same way, we're going to see these creatures at the end, these beings at the end, as David is an evolutionary step towards them. So they they want to understand them. So I I hadn't thought about that, but maybe that's part of it too. Is like that is that is the way that he understands the world is through that because that is his evolution in the same way we think about human evolution. We could think about, well, like what are the, what are the things that are almost coded into us in an evolutionary process? I think that's, that that's interesting to think about. Well, in, in, in a sense at the end, they set him up in an immersive interactive game, games, mm -hmm. game scenario. So, Absolutely. So let's move to Act Two then. So Act Two is the first time we we move away from um, David and the the Swinton family, and all of a sudden we see uh, Jude Law as Gigolo Joe in Rouge City, um, and we learn a little. I mean, I think he's a really interesting character, and he ends up telling us uh, uh, for him to be sort of a, a lower form of AI than, mm. than David is interesting because I feel like he he sort of understands the world in ways David can't understand the world. Um, uh, and we're introduced, not unlike Gattaca, to this like sort of almost tertiary like murder situation just to create something that's going to be propulsive. But it like we don't know anything about it. It doesn't matter. But it just means that Joe has to be on the run. Yeah. So, um, uh, but it also points to, I think, I think this is, there's another important piece of that, which is it shows also that AI is used for a kind of scapegoating. It's mm -hmm. like clearly, you know, and, and we're going to see AI scapegoated in other ways when we get to the flesh fair and things like that. Um, 
so Joe is kind of cast out or for, or forced to exile himself from his workplace, I guess, which is Rouge City. Uh, <laughs> and then this leads us to the uh, the the eventually to the flesh fair where we have all of these humans who are maybe not living the same life as the Swintons. Um, mm -hmm. And it's all about these folks who are, uh, there's this active tension between humans and AI and they're trying to, they're basically rounding up rogue AI and as a, uh, uh, an entertainment watching them be destroyed in these sort of graphic kind of public sense. And we have, um, one really cool image in this is is uh, Brendan Gleeson is the, the the leader of this, and he travels in this like hot air balloon that looks like the moon, which is so interesting to see the moon rise and you think of ET and yeah, you know yeah. what the moon means there, and then all of a sudden you're and so then later on they're afraid of the moon because the moon is also this thing, uh, which points this and and um, and we can talk about the the flesh fair uh, once we we get through the um, the kind of the the summary of this act. Um, because I think that is a that's a scene that at first I think I was annoyed by because I I don't love it but I think there's actually really interesting stuff in there, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, so they David is sort of discovered and there's all these questions about why would somebody create a child's mecca like like what would its purpose be because you think about Joe Joe has a purpose you know joe is a is a pleasure bot so you the nanny is has a purpose right it's there mm -hmm. to fulfill a job and you look at david in there there's the um one of the other guys who's like running tech on the uh on the yeah. flesh i'm not sure what his job is um like he's just sort of baffled by it and is kind of uh almost entranced by david and then the brendan gleason character is deeply disgusted by it because mm -hmm. he, you know, and, and so he makes this kind of big speech about this. But when, when David is, is put up to be destroyed, we see that the, uh, the, even the audience at the flesh fair turns on the Brennan Gleason character. And it's like, you know, you can't do that. They, they sort of don't believe that he's Mecca because he's yeah. pleading for his life and his safety. And this ends up to them sort of escaping from this in the Pinocchio story. This would be the, uh, uh, the the puppet master guy. I mean, it's mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. version of the story. And then they move to Rouge City, which is the Pleasure Island, um, sort of uh, part of the Pinocchio story. And this leads to to Doctor No, um, this knowledge like cross between Wikipedia and a video game, sort of yes. it's like all knowledge, but it's also not. Uh, it's trying to trick you. What if Wikipedia worked like that? Like it's like I don't want it. I have the answers, but I don't want to give them to you unless you ask in the right way. And this then leads them to Manhattan, mm. uh, where they encounter Doctor Hobby, and we have all kinds of interesting stuff there um, that eventually leads to David at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so things you want to talk about in in this section of the of the the story because this is the in some ways I feel like the the meaty the meaty yeah. bit of this story. Yeah. So just uh, just at one level, I just want to mention that some of the pleasures of Jude Law's character. Um, uh, I think that you know there's clear allusions to singing in the rain, and uh, he actually modeled his movements on Gene Kelly and, and Fred Astaire. Um, he also has the signature this little signature phrase, "What do you know, Joe?" Which I think is a is a quote from uh, one of Jimmy Cagney's early films, Angels of Dirty Faces, uh, where Cagney has a signature, what do you hear, what do you see, what do you know? Um, so I, I kind of love that little element of, of his character. But 
to me, a couple of really significant things going on um, having to do with uh, with the flesh fair is, and I, and I like what you said about um, the, the, this is how the film enters into a kind of a glimpse of a different class of people, uh, literally. So there is there is this no, there is this fear of science. There's this fear of um, kind of a post human uh, condition. And it, it made me think actually of some lines from uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson's uh, In Memoriam, where Tennyson is kind of grappling with uh, what we understand human beings to be uh, because of the latest scientific discoveries. And, and Tennyson says, I think we are not wholly brain, magnetic mockeries, not only cunning casts in clay. In other words, meccas. Let science prove we are, and then what matters science unto men, at least to me. So it seems to me that, that that's kind of a, a universal theme, this fear that we are not unique. And if you can make thing, something that looks and acts just like us, then that means that maybe we aren't as special as we, as we think that we are. And, and I started thinking about, about why, why are emotions based on silicone inferior to emotions based on carbon? In other words, there are, you can take a reductive view of human nature, which says that basically everything we, we think and do comes from our various glands and other sorts of chemicals interacting within our body. So why is that somehow better than those sorts of same interactions happening within computer, within uh, silicone circuits? It's, it's kind of the, the old, you know, Descartes problem of the ghost and the machine. What's the connection between a brain and a mind? And so to me, what's really interesting about the flesh fair is it really plays into what I think is a fundamental human insecurity, at least since the enlightenment, about what it means to really be a human being. Are we any more than flesh and blood? What is, what is the spirit? What is the soul? And I think by destroying the bots, the, uh, uh, the people who participate in the flesh fair are dealing with their own anxiety about their own identity. And how and and it's, it's so interesting to think about that when you we think about when they get to Manhattan and David destroys the first David that he meets and he's saying I am unique I am special yes I mean it's like that is really really interesting you know to think about that's his own flesh fair almost because mm -hmm. the one time we see David David do something like that I also think it's so interesting because the uh, visually we're we're built. Uh, we're led to be sort of disgusted by the flesh fair. We're led to in, 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 in all of the ways that it, uh, and, and the Brennan Cleason character is not somebody that we're, that, that we're, um, by the way, the film, the story works by the, even the way it looks, we're supposed to be like, this is this dark figure. But if you listen to what he says, it's like, maybe he's not wrong. I mean, like, like, like there's lots of versions of science fiction that are sort of, you know, the, the things that are sort of asking the questions of, you know, maybe if, if man tries to create something in his own image that it leads to this darkness, it's like, that's kind of what he's saying to a certain degree about like, are we building these things that are replacing us? What does the, you know, you know, that it's this celebration of real life as opposed to this artificial life. So like you're, you're torn between listening to what he has to say and then the emotions of the fact that I, I wrote in my notes as I was watching this, how different would it feel if the, uh, the Mechas didn't look like people, right? Like when Hal dies in, uh, in 2001, a space odyssey, one of the, the, the cool magic tricks that, um, that Kubrick plays is that Hal doesn't 
seem human at all. And he's also homicidal, but at the same time, there's something gut wrenching about Hal slowly dying in, uh, you know, on that, on that, uh, that spaceship. But you don't need to think about Hal like a person. You look at even all the different kinds of mecha that are at the flesh fair, and all of them are humanoid to a certain degree. They have enough things. They're created enough in our image that, 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 uh, and the story is built to sort of be drawn to them that I think that that makes that, that establishes to you, like, whose side are you on? You know, and it forces you to ask that because that's going to matter later on, um, later on in the film. Well, you know, it it reminds me, uh, this is another part part of the film. It reminds me a little bit about Gattaca in that, you know, in Gattaca, you have the blood, the blood test to see if you are, uh, you know, wh- wh- whether or not you are one of the designed uh, people or not. And here you have that kind of x-ray. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so it's kind of like, it, it's, it's, to me, it kind of raises the same question that the Gattaca did, which is, you know, why, why, why do you need to go beneath the surface to figure out if this thing is really, is really real? And I think, again, it comes back to sort of insecurity about your own, your own identity. I also want to say just briefly, Sam, there's two, to me, there are two Spielberg tells in the scene. In the flesh that tells me this is Spielberg and not Kubrick. And, and one is, uh, the big one to me is the crowd turning on Johnson Johnson. Um, mm-hmm. I think the crowd, that, that, to me, that's sentimentalism. Um, I, don't think, I, don't, I honestly don't think they would have. Um, I understand how it's set up, but I think it's, it's Spielberg. And I think the rescue of David. And obviously, to keep the plot going forward, you got to rescue David. But that, to me, is also a very Spielbergian, Spielbergian touch. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, thoughts on Rouge City? This is my least interesting part of the movie to me, other than the Dr. No stuff is interesting, but um, but the, yeah, if, if there's uh, a part that I'm less excited about, it's this. Well, vi- vi- visually, Rouge City, to me, uh, is a throwback to another film in this whole genre, which is Blade Runner. Um, so I think, you know, to me, so to me, Rouge City is mostly kind of a visual fest. Um, it's a little interesting just to see uh, Joe kind of in his element, um, and and Doctor No, who is uh, Robin Williams. Uh, that's that's an interesting um, inter- interaction, and uh, I, I love the idea of, um, of of the various categories in which Doctor No can answer. So, and the idea of marrying flat fact uh, with fairy tale. Um, but of course, I also love the fact that this is all part of, as it often is in dystopias, uh, this is all part of kind of Big Brother. Uh, so this is exactly how they're actually tracking and manipulating them, even mm-hmm. as they think they're making their way freely to Manhattan. It also does serve as the like, uh, you know, we talked last week about dystopias and sort of like, like what is the, what are the things that are created as a distraction for people? And like the flesh fairs are a distraction, but so is Rue City. Like, like, let's just give you kind of, hedonistic pleasure so you're not noticing the um the especially if you're not people in that higher class right you're not noticing the ways in which you're suffering um you know in 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 those types of things um this then leads them it also has like a little wizard of oz feel to it like we're going to see this person with answers and then does this person really have answers or are they just pushing moving us somewhere else um i would say visually it also reminds me a little bit of like um some elements of like a later Spielberg movie, like Ready Player One. There's sort of yeah, little yeah. elements visually there, uh, but yeah. this leads us to Manhattan, um, where we where uh, where David finally meets um, meets uh, Professor Hobby, uh, and he sees all as you re- uh, referred to, sees all the 
different uh i think there is it david and darlene is that yeah, the, Dar yeah i think it's darlene yes. yeah it also you know throughout this this is where we start to realize that hobby has created a version of his own son we see yeah. pictures of his own son this makes me think about uh ray kurzweil um and the the documentary transcendent man which is the sort of sub there was probably text and subtext of that documentary is Kurzweil wanting to bring his father back and thinking about those types of things. And this movie obviously pushes towards that idea of singularity when AI no longer needs us. So there's sort of these, it made me think of, of, of that story. Um, we have this great line where David, I think hobby asked David how he feels. And he says something like my brain is slipping out of my head. It's just, mm -hmm. just like, it's just very, and it, cause it's like, you never hear da hear David say things like that, but there is mm. this kind of different sense of self-awareness or personhood. And it also is thinking about what is the difference between my brain and my head, mm -hmm. you know, or my mind and my, and my brain or something like that. And then we have this David like suicide moment when he just kind of gives up and plunges into the water. Uh, and that, which leads to the Joe getting taken away and his great last lines, I am, I was, uh, uh, and then we finally get to the, at the bottom of the sea in the amphibicopter, Teddy and David, uh, and the, the Ferris wheel collapses on them. So they're stuck and Teddy has a great line. We are in a cage yes. and, they, and then they're staring at the blue fairy and it pans out and it feels like the end of the movie. Uh, and um, before we get to the third act, is there anything you want to say about the, the Manhattan stuff? I, I, I do want to say that one of the things that is interesting to me about the, the Mecca's being in this dystopian future is you could also have Mecca's in a, in a more utopian future. So I immediately thought of Data and Star Trek Next Generation, um, which also raises interesting questions about what it is to be human and what it is to be an android, but does not see that as in any way um, problematic and in fact when you if you've watched the um the series picard um the relationship between picard and data is very important because picard actually loves data and then you discover that the scientist who plays the creator of data is also brent spiner so there's a sense in which he has modeled data on himself uh and so those connections back to dr S to, to uh professor uh, hobby modeling david on his own son made me think that there's that this doesn't have to be dystopian there could be a utopian vision of this kind of creation and there's all it's also set in a world where the the dystopia utopia hasn't tipped fully either because you know i thought about a movie like the matrix which is pushed further into the future and it's like is this world headed towards a war between machines and man or we're not there yet at this point but like right. you can see the seeds of that potentially, or you, or it could go in another direction. One last thing I want to say about this act and, and really this movie as a whole and, and what, what stuck with me since I saw it in 2001 is it reminds me of my favorite part of Orson Scott cards, Ender's game, mm. which is the, the video game that Ender plays. Cause it's this whole, like, I, I just feel like in that, when I read that book for the first time, I feel like I was taken to a Within a sci-fi sci world, I was taken to a different world where we kept exploring things and anything could happen. And as this act ends and it starts to pull away and then all of a sudden it cuts to 2000 years later, I, that's where I had that feeling of like, okay, we this can go anywhere now and I have no idea what this story is anymore. Um, so we get to the last act and um, I, won't, I won't lay it all out. We, uh, 
do you want to, because we're, we're running short of time and I'm aware of that. Uh, do you want to talk about the, the last act of this movie? So the 2000 years later, what are things that jump out to you here? Well, I mean, if, you know, the, the, the notion that of course, obviously human beings have become extinct evidently in those, in those 2000 years. Um, I think it, it's kind of an open question about uh, whether or not the beings are aliens or more advanced uh, mechas. Um, I, you think I, that's an open question? Yeah, according to a number of the reviews that I read, um, most people favor them being mechas, uh, and that's probably the way I would go as well. But you could raise the, the question because either way, they are curious about humans. They've never had any connection to human beings. Um, I think that's a pretty big question, though, because if they are mechas, it changes the meanings of a, of a lot of things at the end of this. You know, I, I, I read them I, as mechas. I do, I, do, I do think they're mechas, but I just wanted to say there are some people who raised that question. But what's interesting about that, of course, is that they then David truly is unique because he becomes their only connection back to human beings. He's the only one that actually knew, knew that they were humans. I also find it's interesting, there's a, there's a touch of Gattaca here again, where they're able to sort of resurrect or recreate uh, his mother just based on, on the hair. And we haven't talked at all about Teddy. Uh, and, and Teddy is such an interesting kind of plot device because good old Teddy still got that hair tucked away 2,000 years later. Um, I, I, I do have, uh, as a side note, I wonder about what kind of power keeps Teddy and David going for 2,000 years, but I guess we just won't worry about that. Yeah. I did think about the uh, the Jude Law hair from Gattaca because like that just is just a thing at the end. And I had, so I watched these those two movies back to back and was like, interesting. There are like identical locks of hair that these people <laughs> just sort of happen to show up. Um, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about this ending is, uh, you know, Teddy when Teddy says when they're at the bottom of the ocean, we are in a cage, and then when they get out, they are still kind of you could view it as we are in a cage, like, like still like we have now built this world for you and it reminds me so much of um dave in 2001 at the end where he mm -hmm. is in this yeah. this space built for him where he is observed now one of the differences is that in 2001 because dave is a human he ages mm -hmm. right that um david's never going to age so I, I like i wonder like how long is david there before we see that the sort of the like is this this is all happening very quickly it could happen very slowly because for for david time is almost irrelevant especially in the cage where they could manipulate time however they wanted um and then we get to this big question of like uh you know they they tell him you know we could we we have the technology to bring your mother back but it will only be for for this one day um and here's where i feel like it's like this movie has this has actually this very dark ending because uh, David is insistent, you know, like, especially once he gets the hair, he's like, you know what to do. If you want me to be happy, you have to bring her back. And they tell her, they tell him, if we bring her back, it is only going to be for this day. And in, in essence, like we're, it's a little unclear what they mean by this, but it's like, she's getting ripped from the space time continuum. And I don't know, does that mean she like ceases to even exist in, I don't know what that means, but, right. but, but there is this sort of like, she still, as long as we don't do this, she still exists in this kind of way. But if we do this, she no longer exists in that way. And he chooses to have the one day, yeah. which I think is this like deeply interesting thing. And then they have this day, which is an art. It's not really his mother because she's stripped away from her other responsibilities. She's stripped away from Martin. She's stripped away from her husband. And they have this sort of day together. Um, and as it reaches its end, 
you know, she, she goes to sleep and we know, well, she's never going to wake up. And then I think an open-ended question is, is David, is this the completion of David? Mm -hmm. Does he wake up? Does he wake up the next day? We get that voiceover of, you know, he goes to the place where dreams come from or something like that, which is one of the things hobby says at the beginning, can we create an AI who can dream? And and then we see Teddy climb up onto the bed and sitting at the edge of the bed, watching the two of them, much like in the amphibicopter, they were just looking at the blue fairy. So then I wonder, is Teddy just there for eternity watching yeah. these two figures? Um, so I don't think this is like a, a sweet ending necessarily. Like I, it's, to me, it's a very, very dark ending um, that you can read in kinds of ways, depending on, it's sort of like, we always go back to what is February 3rd, right? What is the day after ground? Yes, day? Well, yes. What does the next day look like? Is you know is is what does Teddy's life look like? Even if David doesn't wake up, and if David does wake up, what's next for him? Well, I, I think I think everything you've said, um, Sam, kind of a- adds up to to affirming that this is a Kubrickian ending. Mm-hmm. This is this is not this is not a Spielberg ending. I, I think so. And it's it's partially why I why I love this movie is it is it is haunted. There is a great A.O. Did you read the A.O. Scott review of this? No, I never got to his review. It's great. You should I'm read sure it. it. Well, one of the things that he says is uh, fear is the underside of enchantment, and the spell of wonder AI cast is tinged with dread. Oh. And I think about that at the end, and it's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, that's it, perfect. It's, it's great. Uh, we are running short of time, but are there other things you want to talk about with this with this film? Just just two things quickly. One is just kind of a uh, of a comment on the narrator. Uh, you already alluded to Ben Kingsley being the narrator, but I want to know where this narrator exists in space and time. Um, it truly is the voice of God, right? The other thing is that we, neither of us has pointed out that one of the recurring motifs in the film are the lines from uh, Yeats's poem, The Stolen Child, um, which is really interesting uh, because the, the key lines are these, come away, O human child to the waters in the wild with a fairy hand in hand for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Um, I just I just think that's a very significant gloss along with Pinocchio on, on David's quest. Uh, and the blue fairy, by the way, is Meryl Streep. We should mention that. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting, you know, as a, as an idea, I think hobby says to David um, when they meet uh, that, or, or maybe he's just talking about David, and he and he says that the what makes us human is the ability to dream and strive for that which is impossible, mm-hmm. and like, um, because it is interesting to think about like if this if this is asking us sort of what is real, what is human, like is is it possible for something artificially created to do those things? Is is that what David's doing, or is David just following uh, an increasingly complex set of coding? Um, I, I, I just think this this movie asks these big questions that it and I love that it doesn't try to answer them, but it forces you to to have to sit and sit with them and think about them. What, one reason I'm really glad that Spielberg directed the film is that it was rated PG-13, and that would not have been the case if Kubrick had directed it. Um, in, in fact, the Jude Law character is supposed to be a GI uh, rather than a the uh, the sex doll and uh, when the suggestion was made to change it, uh, Kubrick said, "Well, we just lost the kitty market." Um, <laughs> but fortunately, with Spielberg at the helm, it remained a film that uh, is, I think, you know, real, realistically rated at PG thirteen, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, and I actually watching it with my daughter, I forgot that she didn't know where it was going. So the first act 
read like such a horror film to her. Mm. There were so many moments where it was almost jump scares where David is just, he's trying to figure out what he's supposed to be. The moment when he laughs at the dinner table and oh. it's like, he doesn't know how to even like modulate laughter <laughs> is terrifying. It is. He's, it's a great terrifying performance for a character that you fall in love with. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, maybe that's what the movie's talking about as well, that it, that there is this adjustment we need to make to him. But um, I, I adored this movie. I really like, this is one that I am going to go back to. I, every year I watch 2001, a space odyssey. Um, and I, I want to watch these two side by side by side a little bit and think about, um, the way that they're asking similar questions that they're inverting questions. Um, and I do think it's interesting that, that they have this similar ending with our Dave and our David, or not similar ending, but similar like setup for the ending. Um, and both of those ask questions that are, uh, maybe important to ask, but difficult to answer. So what do you have for us for next week? <laughs> well, let me just say, uh, before I get to next week, let me, let me just suggest you talked about watching this along 2001. I would also suggest if listeners want to explore other films along these similar themes, I alluded to Blade Runner earlier. Um, I also think Ex Machina would be another excellent film to follow up with this. I think another interesting exploration of AI consciousness would be Her. Uh, and then another film that uses AI, but I think doesn't pose some of the same difficulties because the robot is not very lifelike is Frank and Robot. Uh, it raises some interesting moral issues uh, as well. So next week, I, I want to kind of finish up three films on this kind of exploration of human relationship to technology. So I want to watch one of Werner Herzog's uh, recent documentaries, uh, Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World. Uh, which is his 2016 documentary on the internet. Wow, I'm so excited for that. I was actually just thinking, I saw something with uh, Werner Herzog in it, and I was like, I need to go watch more of his stuff. So this is, uh, this is a, a great uh, great reason to do this. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film, for getting me to watch it twice in a month and to spend <laughs> a lot of time with it. Um, this is one that I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to go back to. Um, thank you so much for that. And we will be back next week to talk about Lo and Behold, and it's a much longer title than that, uh, from 2016 in the video store.